0: Started. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have Morgan Clary on as our very first guest. She is also known as Ivy Fruitful from Instagram. Her account shares a really raw side of infertility. Um, Morgan is extremely knowledgeable on all things fertility. One of the reasons we really wanted her to be on as one of our first guests. So Morgan is joining us from a hotel room in Charleston, South Carolina. She is about 20 minutes away from me and about three hours away from Amanda. So we are all on zoom this morning. Morgan was diagnosed with endometriosis at 22 years old. So today she's going to walk us through what that diagnosis looked like for her at such a young age, as well as all of the fertility treatments that she has since been through. So welcome, Morgan. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk about everything and I wish we could have done this in person, but we're still
1: close. I know we're so close. (laughs)
2: But yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, Happy to answer any questions, whatever y'all wanna go over, I will be an open book.
1: Yeah, that sounds great, Morgan. If you wanna just go ahead and jump into your diagnosis, especially at that young age, at 22, just kind of what that looked like, how you were diagnosed, if you had like what your symptoms were, um, just kind of talk to us about the endometriosis. Yeah,
2: absolutely. when I was in college, I went to the University of Alabama and we walked to all of our classes and at certain times of the month, typically surrounding my you know, menstrual cycle period or ovulation. At that time, I didn't know it was ovulation because I wasn't tracking it, but going back and thinking about it, it was about every 14 days. When I was walking to class, I would have the most sharp shooting pains and it wasn't crampy abdominal like a lot of people had described, you know, period cramps it was more vaginal and sharp shooting. And I I would have to stop mid walk to class and like step to the side and wait for that pain to go away after, you know, 15, 20 seconds. And then I'd keep walking and I didn't think anything of it. And I was talking to my OBGYN who I absolutely love. And she said, you know, endometriosis can only be, at that time, um, you know, detected and diagnosed through surgery. So we can go in and do an exploratory surgery. If, if you don't have any, it's just going to be one incision, you know, with the camera going in and checking. And if it's, we find it, we'll go in with another incision. And I think that they burned it out where I went to. Um, and when they went in, they found stage two endometriosis. And they said that on average, and it's obviously different for everybody, that the surgery can kind of help with symptoms and pain three to seven years. And it did, it helped. Um, And then again in 2017, I think I have that right. I was living in Birmingham, working in healthcare. And I talked to my doctor there as well. And I told her that my pain wasn't quite as bad as it was before, but I had really good health insurance and doing it through my work was only a hundred dollars. Oh, wow. So, so I said, let's do another exploratory surgery, see if it's there, see if it's grown back. And it had not quite as bad as the first surgery and diagnosis, but it was there. Um, the one thing that I wish that I had known and my OBs didn't tell me this was the second one was a different OB in Birmingham that doing that surgery can impact your egg reserve or your AMH anything that's you know, invasive in that area can impact it. And so had I have known that I may have waited to do my second surgery a couple more years, closer to the time of actually trying to conceive. Um, But that's really my only regret. I mean, I'm glad I did it. It helped with the pain. I had that diagnosis. They did tell me you may have some difficulties in the future. I had a friend when I worked right after college who also had it and she had the surgery and then tried naturally and got pregnant three months afterwards because it kind of cleans it out um so I've always been curious if I should have it again but neither of my doctors have really focused on endo when it comes to IVF like I think that they think that it kind of bypasses it because you're already implanting that embryo but I don't know scientifically the details and that, but I've always been curious if I should have it again before another transfer, but neither doctors have ever emphasized on it, which I think. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. So with that being said, with the endometriosis diagnosis and the, then the two surgeries, what really led you to move into IUI? Was that the very first thing you guys tried or did you try? Yeah. Naturally? So- Yeah, we did. We got married in June of 2019.
2: And when I met my husband, I think on our second date, I told him that I could potentially have struggles. I did not expect it to be now almost, you know, two and a half, three years down the road. But, um, you know, he was actually on the board of an adoption agency in Pensacola, too. So I was like, oh, my God, it's a match made in heaven. If we can't have kids, we can adopt. Um, and so he was super supportive of it, and we started trying. I got off birth control the month of our wedding. We started trying immediately because I didn't know how long it would take to get regular periods after getting off of birth control for 16, 17 years. I got on it when I was 13 because I had a cyst that was like the size of a golf ball, and so I'd been and since my surgery, I'd been on straight birth control. Like I just had withdrawal bleeds. I never took the you know sugar pills or whatever it is at the end of the cycle, but we started trying immediately. Tried for six months, and I was just like, I'm impatient and a very Type A person, so I was like, well, Let's skip to it. Let's just go have a consultation. And little did I know, after all the diagnosis, I had low AMH, extremely low at that time. Um, I've worked on it and surprisingly gotten it to you know increase a little bit. But and at that time, I too didn't know that my hypothyroid could play a, pa- a part in infertility, really more so in miscarriages. So that kind of opened our eyes to a whole new thing. And and our doctor gave us the option. He was very blunt at the beginning. He gave us four options. Keep trying naturally, IUI, IVF, or go straight to donor eggs. So, I mean, he really said, your AMH is equivalent to that of a 49 year old woman and you're 29. And so that scared me half to death. And my mom went through menopause at 38. So I was like, all right, let's not waste time, let's go.
0: Wow, that is insane. I know that the AMH is really the first thing that everyone gets tested when they're doing that first <laughs> initial consult. I You are so knowledgeable and I love how you share everything. Are you comfortable just sharing what AMH is for somebody that maybe like has only been trying for three months, like what it is yeah. and what it looks at? I'm probably gonna butcher
2: the name or the word. It's anti-malarial, anti-malarial hormone.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> me too, me
2: too. <laughs> AMH and a lot of people test the FSH as well and it has to be tested at a specific time in your cycle. I think it's around day three to five um, to get the best read and it can fluctuate month to month. So I've had it tested three times in the last two and a half years, but um, it correlates to egg reserve and sometimes quality. So like the number of eggs you have left in your basket, that's how my doctor described it. Um, And mine was 0.43. 0.43. And on the scale, my doctor gave me, you know, like a graph. This is where your age is. This is where your AMH should be. And he was like, this is where you are. And this is where you should be. And so they can't 100% tie it to quality, but a lot of the times it does correlate. So if you have a low AMH, you have may have lower quality eggs as well. Um, I read It Starts With the Egg and did a lot of research and I. Changed my diet. Um, I went to gluten free, dairy free, caffeine free for a good time. I was probably you know ninety percent alcohol free as well. Um, and then I switched a lot of my prenatals from just what I was buying at CVS to one that my acupuncturist suggested that was plant based and a little more holistic. And then also did ubiquinol instead of CoQ10. You know, I just implemented a lot of changes, and then my AMH rose to one point zero eight which they then correlated me to like 39 instead of 49, which was a win in my book. So yeah, sure, I didn't have a higher low FSH. Mine was strictly AMH. Um, and I'm not as familiar about the FSH side of it, but I know that that can play a part as well. So it, long story short, it could impact how many eggs you produce in a month. While somebody could produce 20 to 30, somebody with a lower AMH may have,
0: three to 10. Yeah, absolutely. I know Amanda, you also were diagnosed with diminished ovarian reserve. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I was. And it, listening to you, Morgan, it's crazy because it almost
1: is identical. Um, <laughs> mine, two was point, mine was point four. Um, okay. And the same thing they told me I was basically in my late forties. Um, and for us, quality was the issue. So we did go through multiple rounds um, of IVF as well. And um, all our embryos kept coming back abnormal. So ours, we had not a lot of eggs. um, And then our embryos just all winded up coming back abnormal. So mine was quality as well um, as quantity. So yeah, very similar stories and all unexplained. Um, I don't have endometriosis. I was never diagnosed with that, but mine is all unexplained as well. So It's so crazy how so many women, especially so young, because I was, when I was first diagnosed, was only 26. Um, And so it's so crazy how young we could be diagnosed with it. But yeah.
0: I mean, I don't
2: know why more OBGYNs don't just test for it, you know, every few years. Mm -hmm. I had somebody message me on IB Fruitful, and she was um, a single girl living in it was Chicago or New York in a big city I think she was 22 or 24 and she said you know I went and got checked I'm single I'm not looking to have kids but she said my AMH was 0.07 it was I mean it was extremely low so she moved forward and had her eggs frozen it's not the end all be all it's not gonna like you know 100% diagnose you but maybe it will give you a picture of what you might need to expect
1: yeah
0: I I couldn't agree more. I I don't know if you guys have heard, but I actually, before I was on birth control, before we started trying, I don't even think we might have just gotten engaged. Have you guys heard of modern fertility? Yes. So that's what I've been doing. All of my friends now, I'm like the fertility guru, I guess. <laughs> so they're like, what should I do? We just got married and you I don't want to turn into you. Basically, <laughs> as nice as possible. Um, and I just like always suggest like go to Modern Fertility. That's exactly like what you just said is what they're doing. And you can go online and you can get that AMH tested, the FS. FSH, the LH, really that like first panel, and mm-hmm. we're not sponsored. Maybe we should be, but it's like <laughs> $180. Whereas I'm sure all three of us know, you go to that first fertility appointment, and you're upwards of three, four, five hundred dollars. Absolutely. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> um, so that.
2: that's a great idea.
0: Yeah. So you were diagnosed with, you know, diminished ovarian reserve. You had already gone through your endometriosis and then the hypothyroidism kind of came into play with fertility. Did you guys just after that first consult of six months say, okay, IUI is where we're going to go.
2: Yeah. My doctor wanted to be a little more aggressive. IUI can be done in many different ways, you know, natural with oral medications, with injectables, just like IVF. And I did two IUI cycles with injections. It was a shorter time frame. You know, when you're about to ovulate, you don't take the medication to prevent you from ovulating. Typically, they just time it with the insemination. So we did two um, June and July of 2020. And I, we didn't know how I was going to respond because a lot of time with DOR, you also have poor response, poor ovarian response. And so I actually did get three and four mature follicles both times, and. You know, naive. My husband loves to bring this up. Our first one, the doctor scared us to death. and was like, you have four follicles. It could be triplets. It could be quadruplets. They could divide. And so I called my husband in a panic attack. And I said, you have to meet me for lunch. This is like a weekday. He's working. And I remember we went to our favorite restaurant in Pensacola. And I sat down and I said, there's this risk. but I And they they went ahead and triggered me at the office. And they said, if you don't want to come in tomorrow, that's fine. If you want to try naturally, that's fine. Whatever. And we decided to move forward and my husband loves to joke that we were so worried about that first time and now here we are, <laughs> but um, yeah. I mean, IUI is, we're out of pocket. We're not covered by insurance unfortunately and IUI is a cheaper you know, route than IVF. And so we said, yeah, let's give it a try. We did two, unfortunately they were unsuccessful. Um, but IUI at our clinic was very expensive And so after two, there's just so much riding on IUIs to me. You know, if this works, we don't have to go through IVF. If this works, I don't have to have surgery. If this works, I don't have to pay another $20,000. So they were really, really tough on me emotionally. Um, And so after two, I had a heart-to-heart with my husband. I was like, we could keep trying this. I know it works for many people. At that time, I had one of my good friends in Pensacola get pregnant with triplets through IUI same doctor. And I was like, Oh, I'd love to have multiples. Everybody, you know, <laughs> I think that's what but, we all say, right? Like, I please divide,
0: please give us just like three I babies.
2: <laughs> exactly. And, and then be done. And not have to do this ever again. Yeah. Um, but I just, I couldn't do a third as much as it sounded great. Try another time, save the money. I just couldn't do it. Wow. It just broke my heart too much.
0: So from that, I completely understand, and myself and Amanda were both in situations where IUI wasn't really an, an option for us. They just moved us straight to IVF, so that was really insightful for me personally. how long I mean, each IUI cycle, is that like a four to six week process? So my doctor, and not everyone does this, um, puts you on a
2: birth control to kind of time you up with their clinic so they can do all IUIs the same time of the month, all IVF the same time of the month. And also it suppresses your you know, ov- ovaries for cysts or anything along those lines. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's about the same as a standard menstrual cycle with maybe a couple extra weeks because you do have to get on that birth control, which is such an odd concept for people beginning IVF is you have to get on birth control to try to have kids. But um, yeah, I would say it was about four to six weeks overall getting on birth control, going through the injections, And you also, like my clinic did a beta, you know, a blood draw. Some don't, some just say, see if you have a period or you take a test, but it's a stressful four to six weeks. And it's your first time doing it. I mean,
1: it's just tough. Oh yeah. No, I'm sure it's very overwhelming too. Um, So then after, so you did the two and then after you were like, okay, no more, we're not going to do a third one. Were you guys just like, yes, let's just jump right into IVF or- What kind of, you,
2: I, like I said, I mean, it really took a toll toll on my mental health. I got in a really low place. I told my husband, I wasn't in the right mindset. I I didn't want to continue with fertility treatments at that time. I knew IVF was the next option. Of course, in my heart, I dreamt that we were going to be like the golden ticket of the people that get pregnant the month before they start IVF. So we just, (laughs) we just tried naturally. I would say from like August to October. And, you know, I got back working out, hung out with friends, we traveled a little bit, just a normal life that wasn't a hundred percent, more like 150% revolving around every day of your menstrual cycle. Um, and we actually switched doctors as well. We consulted with another physician and we switched just by a gut feeling. There was nothing about our prior doctor that we didn't like. He Mm -hmm. was great, but, um, that's when we decided. And we got finally in October, we got a consultation with the other doctor two months later, cause he was booked out. And then in December of 2020, we decided to, we paid for IVF and we were supposed to start in January. And then that's when my first big hiccup happened <laughs> with a canceled
0: cycle. Oh my goodness. I've never had a canceled cycle. <laughs> um Amanda, you've you've experienced somewhat of a canceled cycle on the back end of it, but can you yeah. explain what that looks like? Cause I know for me, so I've been through one round of IVF and I was pretty naive before like signing the papers. I just thought like you did IVF and there was no hic- <laughs> hiccups. <Yeah. laughs> um, and then once you start, you're like, Oh my gosh, this can be pulled away from me at any point. Um, like you could be like eight days into doing stomach injections and then you could have your appointment and they're like up canceled. So could you kind of speak to that? I, I really can't imagine. It was,
2: it was one of the hardest days. So my clinic does essentially like an IVF education course. And it's the first Tuesday of the month, every month. So we drove over to Mobile, Alabama, an hour away, my husband and I. And we went through hours of injection training, embryo education, all these things that went so far over my head. I'm like, I'm paying you. I'm trusting the embryologist. Mm-hmm. But at that same clinic or at that same appointment, they did my first baseline blood draw because we were supposed to start shortly after that. I wasn't expecting anything of it. I will say I did have COVID. The, or I tested positive December before that. So December 2020 had no symptoms didn't know I had it, but we tested before Christmas for family, wanted to be safe. And when I had my blood drawn, I remember her saying, your blood is so dark. And it was very, very dark and very, very thick. I didn't think anything of it. Well, we get home and I remember I was going to dinner with a client and some of my coworkers and I got a call that said, Morgan, your TSH, which is your thyroid, one of the ones that they measure for your thyroid was 7.9. And I mean that is so high compared to what they wanted when you're trying to conceive. Trying to conceive they want it under 2.5. My doctor going through IVF, really wanted it under 1.5. And so they canceled it. And now, now I'm remembering at that appointment too, I had a 37 millimeter cyst. And they said if this doesn't go down by your next appointment or if it's estrogen producing, you could get canceled. So the 24 hours that I had been spending, I was worried about this cyst. And then it actually got canceled because of my thyroid and, you know, we had prepared, we had been taking a break. We had paid the $25,000. dollars we had gotten the injections and we were so excited. And then just the rug got pulled out from underneath, underneath us. And I have a picture of myself from that day in the car outside of dinner <laughs> that we were supposed to be having with clients. And yeah, it was canceled. And they essentially told me go meet with your medical endocrinologist, get your Synthroid, you know, dosage changed. We're not sure when you'll be able to start again. We'll take your blood draw every two weeks to see if like maintains the lower level. And so that it, the uncertainty of infertility is a big thing that weighed on me and just not knowing how long it was going to take. But I, it ended up dropping in two weeks. And then the reason I brought up the COVID was that I spoke to one of my doctors and they said that obviously I don't know a ton about COVID, but it has to do with your blood and it has impacted a lot of people's lab draws because your, your blood is thicker. And what my doctor told me to do was go donate blood to try to thin it out and replenish. And I did do that and it did help with my lab results, but
0: wow, yeah, canceled. That's-
2: canceled are not fun. And that I had another one canceled too down the road, but we'll talk about that later.
0: <laughs> yeah. I remember your other one canceled. So I, I think what you said, which is un- the uncertainty around infertility and how long everything takes. I think people that aren't in this world or maybe haven't jumped into an IUI or an IVF yet, they look at it from the outside and say, wow, that takes a long time. But then when you get on the inside oh my goodness, you just wait and wait and wait. And the original plan sounds like the shortcut. Um, Mm -hmm. I think all three of us have had delays in some sort, either like your embryos come back from PGT testing and you have nothing and you have to start again. Or like in my situation, you know, we decided to do the mock cycle, which extended it from like a two and a half month process to a five month process. Um, So I hear, I heard you just say that you did, you had another, um, canceled cycle. So all in all, you did two IUIs and then have you done three IVFs? So essentially, yes, but one of them didn't have
2: the actual egg retrieval. So we went through, I did the first egg retrieval, got eggs, got some embryos, did some transfers and we can elaborate on it, but I got down to, you know, three embryos left. And because of my diagnosis, I kind of wanted to bank embryos because I just figured that the quality and quantity would just be worse, you know, in three or four years. Mm-hmm. So we decided to do a second retrieval and I went through 14 days of stems, 13 or 14 days. And y'all know what that costs. I mean, that alone is about
0: $5,000. And we got to
2: the end and he said, you know, you have one or two eggs that we would probably be able to get in. For somebody that had gotten nine the previous cycle, that was just a b- big blow. And, you know, I just said, I can't, I can't waste our money that we had paid on this cycle. Can we just, you know, pay for the appointments that we just had over the past few weeks and do another cycle? So we did. We canceled that one and converted it to an IUI, which I never thought I was going to be doing another IUI. <laughs> Surprise. And, it too was unsuccessful, but you know, after paying so much for the medications, he said, you could do time dinner intercourse or IUI. And I said, let's increase our chances and do the IUI. Um, and it didn't work. So another cancel <laughs> conversion, I guess it converted.
1: Did you, uh, what? did you do the PGT testing with those? I know you said you were banking embryos. Did you?
2: So we didn't test them the first time. My clinic you, it's, it's not per embryo, it's a set amount for zero or one to four embryos and a set amount for five to eight and anything on top of that per embryo. And I didn't know that when we did our first retrieval. And so I thought it was the full price, which was, I think 4,300 for PGT testing. And we only had four because we were going to do one fresh transfer, which would have left us with four embryos. Mm -hmm. And we didn't PGT test them. Um, we froze them. I did another transfer with one of those. It was unsuccessful, actually the one that ended in my chemical miscarriage. And after that was when I decided I want to PGT test all the frozen ones and I want to do another retrieval. So we did that second retrieval after the converted to the IUI, we did another retrieval and we got all of the embryos from the fresh and we thawed and tested the frozen ones. And that's when we did our PGT testing, okay. which I'm really glad because more uncertainty, just you know, checking off those boxes, crossing them off, uh, eliminating the heartbreak of, and you know, PGT testing is not a hundred percent, you know, accurate. There can be some issues, or one can come back abnormal, and maybe it was normal. You don't really, really know. But for me, after going through multiple transfers, and I'm a numbers person, calculating how much I was spending on supplements, medications. Um, acupuncture, I was spending almost the same that I would spend if I broke down the PGT testing per embryo. But in my mind, we were wasting time or could be wasting time on possibly transferring an abnormal embryo that wouldn't implant or you know, be born. And so we just that's how we decided absolutely. Definitely.
0: And I, I'm laughing because it's taken me like five minutes to realize that probably not everyone knows what PGT testing is. I, all three <laughs> of us are like, yeah, yeah, I know we did it too. And we know the exact price and everything. Um, I'm happy to break it down, but I know you are what much more well-versed than even I am. Do you want to kind of break down what that meat, like what it stands for and then what it tests for? Cause to your point, you know, we transferred a PGT normal embryo and it resulted mm-hmm. in a chemical pregnancy. And, and that was, was our physician's first thing well it's not a hundred percent and you're like well then why did I test for it
2: right
0: (laughs) right and my doctor um actually
2: didn't suggest it or well he gave it as, as an option he didn't really push for it because he said you're young chances are quality is okay um and actually when we did ours majority of ours were okay but there were some that came back abnormal so It's a pre-implantation, pre-implanted genetic testing that you can test for genetic disorders, um, disabilities. There's a few different kinds. We did PGTA, but there's others. I think there's PGTM as well as another one, which I am not very familiar with that one. Um, But they, they can come back normal, abnormal or inconclusive sometimes. Um, and what they do is they take a tiny, tiny, tiny biopsy from your embryos. Most clinics send them off to a testing center. Um, and I didn't know how in depth it was until I got my results back because it literally breaks down by chromosome. As I'm sure you all know if it's, if there's two, three, zero um, of that chromosome, which there translates into whether it's normal or abnormal. Um, but when we did ours, trying to think if there's anything more really to go into about that.
0: No, I don't think so. I think, um, I know you have a crazy story with your PGT testing. Thank so you. I kind of <laughs> wanted you to go into that if you're comfortable. And I wanted to preface it with like what that meant. Um, Cause even women that go through IVF, And like, say they go through IVF and it's a fresh transfer. You're not going to have the opportunity to do the PGT testing because it does take two to three weeks where you just sit by your phone and wait for them to tell you if (laughs) you have any embryos. Um, but even women that have gone through a cycle or two of IVF that haven't ventured into the PGT testing world, it's kind of unknown. And and some people are like, what is that? But, um, to your point, all three of us, you know, when we were doing our first round of IVF, we're in our twenties and most physicians don't recommend it sure. um but for all three of us that did have it done it clearly came back as as some positive results i know morgan you and amanda both had some come back that were abnormal and to your point that is you know upwards of 3 months of wasted time that that embryo was never going to implant anyway. so do you mind just quickly kind of maybe so for some humor going not humor but just craziness going into your pgt testing story um for your once you did your second egg retrieval
2: sure so i want to preface it that i don't want to go into what the company was um that they sent our embryo biopsies off to and since the situation, they have done some things to remedy what happened. Um, but so we sent ours off, you know, we're not worried about anything happening other than abnormal embryos coming back. That, we, that was the biggest of our fears. And actually through Ivy fruitful, I was talking to somebody and they messaged me that they had embryo biopsies damaged in the process. I don't remember how we connected, but we, she remembered that we did our testing the same week and at the same clinic, um, testing center. And she told me that she was informed that the biopsies had been damaged and unable to be biopsied or tested. And it was because a bad chemical reagent that they were using to amplify the DNA. So what that means is when they take a teeny tiny, you know how tiny an embryo is, The teeny tiny biopsy, they use a chemical to amplify the DNA that allows them to better test it. And the company that we used that week specifically, not any other weeks, had a bad chemical reagent. And so two of our biopsies came back inconclusive, which that can happen with a good chemical reagent. You know, people can get inconclusive because they didn't get a big enough biopsy or for whatever reason. The reason for ours was not, it was because the biopsy was damaged in the process because of this chemical. So we had two, we sent off, I believe seven, two were normal, two were abnormal, two of them came back inconclusive due to the bad chemical reagent. um, And one came back mildly mosaic. Technically the company considers it normal. My clinic is a little hesitant to transfer it because the reason that it is mosaic, which is mildly abnormal um, was because of the specific chromosome that it's tied to has a higher live birth rate with disabilities. So um, yeah, since then, we've been in contact with the testing center, figuring out what they can do. Um, And I know that I wasn't the only one, thank goodness that girl that I spoke to, you know, told me about that because I was able to text my IVF coordinator immediately and say, Hey, I know what's going on.
0: Yeah. <laughs> is it because
2: they had my results, but they weren't telling me. I think that the clinic was trying to figure out what to do as well, wow. which I understand, which I understand they were trying to make it right. Be- because I know some people at our clinic who every single one of their biopsies came back inconclusive due to the battery agent, which for us, the ones that came back inconclusive and they offered us to test them again, free of charge. But the ones that came back inconclusive were ones that were frozen from our first retrieval. And so there's always that chance of damaging Mm -hmm. embryos when you thaw and refreeze and thaw and refreeze. So our embryologist said, I don't want to risk it. They've already been thawed biopsies and refrozen once. Let's use your normal ones and then cross that bridge down the line if we need to retest them.
0: Isn't it crazy? Just like going into IVF, you never thought you'd be like, okay, should I double freeze my embryos and thaw? And what do I do? I mean, it is just absolutely insane. And I feel like it never, ever, ever ends. So, um, to kind of wrap up. So this is, you've done at this point, you had done three transfers. Two, Two One transfers. transfer,
2: my fresh transfer from the first retrieval one frozen transfer from the first retrieval, which was the one that ended in the chemical miscarriage. And then after that, we did that second, tried to do a second retrieval, convert to the IUI. And then finally did that second retrieval going through the third round.
0: And so Um, now you are moving forward. I'd love for you to touch on because Amanda and I both did the ERA as well as like the mock Mm -hmm. transfer cycle. And I know that that's what you just finished doing. Is that correct? I did. I did the, what they call the
2: endometrio test, which was the ERA and the Emma and the Alice. So the ERA is the endometrial receptivity analysis, which helps determine your best implantation window. So that means when you're going through a transfer, you, there's different ways and different protocols. Some people do natural. I've always done estrogen priming and progesterone injections leading up to. And I'm pretty standard across the board. Most clinics do five days of progesterone injections before your transfer, but sometimes people need more or less progesterone. And that's kind of what helps determine their receptive window. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what they do is that you prep for a transfer, just like you'd be doing a transfer, but instead of the transfer, they go in and biopsy your uterus. Um, the Emma and the Alice are more about the I may get this wrong, microbiome analysis analysis of um, inflammation and things along those lines. But yes, I did that, sent it off, and our receptive window came back normal, which would be considered receptive. So the time at which they would have been doing a transfer, which is when they did the ERA instead, would have been a good time to do it. So they will continue with our transfer protocol the same as what we had done for the ERA. I did have, and my Emma came back normal as well, but my Alice came back with one, there's nine, I think there's nine, um, bacterias that are associated with the endometritis. I may get that wrong as well. Um, and one of those came back positive for me. So my doctor put me on, um, augmentin twice a day to try to reduce that inflammation and reduce the bacteria and clean you out. And then also a vaginal probiotic. Um, to try to help regulate that good and bad bacteria that antibiotics get rid of. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's another thing to eliminate the questions and the what ifs that you have is what if I need more progesterone? What if I need less progesterone? What if I need a antibiotic or be on a Lupron leading up to it? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I did do that. I did that in October.
1: Everyone outside of the IVF world or just infertility in itself think that you just go through IVF and you like have a baby and it just they you transfer it and it's just such a simple process but I mean there's so many things that you can be doing like exactly with the ERA, the Emma, the Alice, all these other things that you know, play a part that so many people just have no idea how much go into it. So it's just so crazy. Um, I
2: mean, we didn't even know. I'm sure y'all didn't either. When we started it, I had no idea. I've learned more in the last two and a half years about You know reproductive health than I ever learned in sex ed. Right, right. (laughs) And I
0: and now all three of us like our whole mission is for to teach others about fertility. And it's so funny. Just and I'm sure you guys both have the same thing. Your friends will ask you the funniest stuff, or they'll try to be like, Yeah, so I remember I um I announced that we did our egg retrieval and. One of my friend's boyfriends was like, "Oh my gosh, congratulations! When's the due date?" That,
2: that happened to me too. That happened to me I'm too. Like, no, I was not it. even
0: close. Uh, but that's to like Amanda's point, where these people, and and uh, me included, a, a year ago, oh, okay. you do IVF and you got your baby. But gosh, do we oh. know that that's not the case? Um, I, I cannot, know. I cannot believe we have already been chatting for forty-five minutes. Um, it's so, so easy to talk about this. It's so easy and it's so helpful too. I mean, all three of us have just been shaking our head on everything. I mean, I know I haven't (laughs) gone through some of the things you've gone through, Morgan and Amanda and vice versa, but um, we did have three questions from our listeners that we kind of wanted to throw your way. They're somewhat, they're not really closing questions. So I'll go ahead and get them started. The first one was, did diminished ovarian reserve, also known as d D-O-R cause your cycle to shorten?
2: So for me, it did not. Um, I know that it can impact a lot of people's cycles. I have always had, um, actually since getting off birth control and trying for a kid before that I had some wonky cycles. Um, but mine's always been 28 days with ovulation around day 13 or 14. So I've been very lucky that I have been able to time things well and, um, I did have one, which it wasn't the DOR after one cycle. I think that I had this, it may just be the meds that you get on. I had a 50 something day cycle, oh, wow. <laughs> but it wasn't the DOR. I think it was just the medications in my body being like, what is all this
1: stuff? What, is what are we doing? <laughs> 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 That's too funny. Um, I just speaking on DOR, obviously, cause I also have it. So mine is, um, shorter. <laughs> So mine does impact mine. Um, but yeah, like you said, I mean, it's just so different for every woman. I think that's what's so hard too, is there's not just like a black and white answer for anything. No. Um, and it's truly different for every single person, regardless if the diagnosis is the same. Um, but yeah, yeah, I know mine definitely was shorter and that was a harder time for me to try and figure out when I was ovulating, which is why it also took right. us, you know, even longer when we were trying naturally to conceive. But
2: Sure. And
1: trying to figure out when you're ovulating is never fun
2: (laughs) because the tests can't, I wish that, I mean, I feel like science now should be able to make that window of ovulation more finite than like, it's going to be in the next 12 to 24 hours. Yes. Right.
0: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So the next question is, how did you make your decision to move from IUI to IVF? And I know we, we kind of already touched on that for you. I'm sure whoever asked this was kind of probably asking for themselves. I know sometimes women will come to me and say, I've done my third IUI and my doctor's saying IVF is your only option. And I, I can't answer that because I didn't, I didn't do IUI for my specific situation. So I don't know if you were able to elaborate or maybe just kind of repeat what you said earlier. Yeah, I mean and I I didn't say that my doctor actually did give
2: us another option of doing another IUI. Um he said you could try another do another third. I don't know if he would have suggested that any after that, but it just really took a toll on my mental health and emotional health. Um and we just and and at our clinic with doing the injections, it was expensive. I know other clinics, my new clinic, I haven't I've only done the one that converted to an IUI with them. But IUI for them is only $800 plus, I think, one monitoring and maybe some oral medications. IUI with my first doctor was 1800 plus the injection. So it ended up being, you know, three to 4,000 every time. And so after two, my mental and emotional health needed to be addressed. We focused on our marriage again, focused on me. And, you know, for anybody that's trying to make that determination of when to switch, definitely do trust your doctors. They know what they're doing, Um, but always advocate for yourself. If you're at your wit's end with this, just tell your doctor and say, I I think that I want to look at other options, you know, put yourself first, put your marriage first. You've got to be happy before all of this, you know, happens. Um, But it's a really tough decision. It, It was tough for us because... I wanted to try another IUI, just try to save money and not have surgery and not go through anesthesia. I think I've been under anesthesia four times this year. (laughs)
0: That's the, I know the anesthesia is the biggest piece. I mean, I had no idea because we haven't even touched on it and and we probably won't have time to, but you know, all the tests leading up to the egg retrieval, I mean, the hysteroscopy, most clinics put you under anesthesia. Mm -hmm. Then a month later, you're going under anesthesia for the egg retrieval. And if you're doing egg banking, then uh, two months later, you're doing it again. Like you said, I think just for one round of IVF, I know I went under anesthesia, well, three times plus I had a DNC prior, so four times in mm-hmm. a span of like seven months, which is super scary and, and expensive. Yeah, it is. It's, it's all
2: expensive. And unfortunately we're not blessed to have insurance coverage, which I wish we did.
0: Oh. Well, thank you so much. Um, I don't have any other questions for you. That was super, super informative. Do you have anything that you want to share with everyone? I am definitely going to link your Instagram. It's I-V-F-R-U-I-T-F-U-L. So like IVF fruitful, but not two Fs. Um, Amanda and I were like, how do you pronounce that?
2: (laughs) My husband came up with it. I was trying to, you know, I... I decided to start posting about it because I am I've always been very open about my, you know, journey of going through it and I was bombarding my husband day and, you know, day and night about my thoughts and so I just started journaling about it and then he was like you need some girls to talk to that have gone through this and I followed one of my friends that I've met, you know, I don't know, it was probably in September and encouraged me to start my own account and some people do it anonymously, don't ever post their face. But, you know, I think that it's important to talk about it for people going through it, whether that's people that, you know, sometimes clinics have support groups. Um, Mine does a local one, but I think that creating that Instagram account and meeting people, I mean, it reconnected us after, you know, going to getting our master's together, but you just got to find what works for you going through it it's not an easy process always be ready for a cancel or a hiccup in the plan i feel like if it that doesn't happen bless you you're so lucky but you just got to find your venue of what you're going to use to get your stress out because it's a stressful process
0: it yeah. is and and for me and you know Amanda is really the reason i started sharing on my account is I saw her share, you know, she had one miscarriage and then she immediately had a second. And as soon as I had my first miscarriage, her name was like the first person in my head to pop up like, what do I do? And I hadn't mm-hmm. spoken to her in 15 years. And so I'm like, Amanda, help me be my answer. And you know, two years later, now I'm that person for a lot of people. And you know, the, Morgan, I was giving my very first um, injection and it was like 8.15 <laughs> at night. I had to mix some of my meds and I freaked out. And I just I haven't called, I don't think I've ever called you in my life. And I called you. I was like, Morgan, I don't know who else to call. What do I do? It's Friday at 8:30, my clinic's closed. How do you mix this? What are you supposed to do? And it's just, Aww. it's such an amazing community. It's not one that any of us want to be in, but here we are. And I'm really excited to share your story. So thank you so much thank for joining us this morning me. and sharing everything.
2: It's wonderful. I've loved it. And yes, anybody is happy. If, I'm happy to answer any questions that people have. If you want to direct message me, um, I will respond. I love meeting people. I love trying to help. But again, doctors are always, you know, trust your doctors, but advocate for yourself. Um, I I wouldn't have done my PGT testing if I hadn't advocated for myself. I wouldn't have done the second retrieval if I hadn't advocated for myself. So do what you got to do. But thank you all so much for having me. Hi, guys
0: back with Morgan Clary. We have a little update that we wanted to add into the podcast. So I will let Morgan share some big news.
2: Hello everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful day and wanted to just get back on here and touch base with what the fertility podcast, because last time when we were recording, I was secretly preparing for a transfer that we did on December the 13th and we are pregnant. It was our third transfer, third frozen, and we did transfer two and only one stuck. But we are blessed to have a baby due. Well, I've been given two due dates: so August thirty first or September first. So oh seven my goodness. Weeks and two days today. <laughs>
0: That's so exciting! That we might could, should include that. Yes. Thank you. We are so excited for you. How awesome. I feel like it's going to be September 1st.
2: I hope it's September. Uh, Steve's birthday is in September. My husband and... Also, school cutoff is in September. So, if it's before that, we want to hold the baby back because we want them to be oldest in the class, which that would be an extra year of daycare. So So
0: typical. You already have their (laughs) their school schedule and everything. Well, Morgan, thank you so much. Thank Um, you. I think this whole podcast will be much, will end on a much brighter note.